0: Well, good morning. Good, morning. Very good Wow, that was a rousing welcome. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. My church is terrible. They would never say good morning like that. So it is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to being here for some time. Uh, I hear such good things about Arbor all the time. Uh, the leadership, the culture, the community spirit. And as a pastor of another church, I have to say, could you try to be a little more average? I mean, it's annoying. Um... <laughs> And it's great to be here. There's a great connection between North Shore, where I serve, and Arbor, uh, in terms of that being the sending church for this amazing community. And I was just talking to someone this morning that said, hey, you know, they've been here since the beginning. They said, hey, uh, I left as soon as you were coming. So I don't know if I'd take that personally or not. um, And I've also had the privilege of getting to know Jake, uh, who is just an amazing guy. And I know you know this, but Jake is the real deal. Uh, An amazing leader, pastor's heart, Um, action-oriented, has a passion to make a God-sized dent in the Puget Sound. And so, Jake, thanks for having me. I think he's off to watch the football game this morning, so (laughs) it's part of why he picked this weekend. Um, Just a little about me. I am originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. Anyone ever been to Arkansas? Anyone going back to Arkansas? Yeah, see? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love my home state. I say that for the recording because if my parents ever listen, they'll get mad if I said that I didn't love Arkansas. But I grew up in Arkansas. I went to college in the Bay Area in California, where I spent the better part of the, yeah, there we go, uh, the better part of the next 20 years, uh, and then including 12 years where I served at a church called Menlo Church before coming here to lead at North Shore, just down the road. Uh, I think I have a picture of my family, is it, are we, are they, you see them, yep. That is my wife, Nina, and our daughter, Nora, who is cute like her mom and needy like her dad. Uh, so this is our family, and we're expecting a baby boy in February, uh, so life, thank you. Uh, we are super excited about that. I have been serving in the church, uh, in churches, for over 20 years. Uh, And the longer I serve, the longer I'm part of a church, church, the more passionate I become about what you're talking about right now as a church community, how to be more like Jesus, how to be just like Jesus. Uh, Because the ultimate goal of being a disciple of Jesus, and if you're new to the church, you'll hear this phrase, disciple. It just means a student of, an apprentice of, someone who is committed to do what Jesus would do if he were you. That's being a disciple, just like Jesus. But it's not something that automatically happens to you, is it? It's not something that just because you wake up one morning and would wish or would want to be more like him, that's automatically going to happen. How many of you uh, have ever met someone who's been in church a long time in their life, but they're still kind of a jerk? Anybody? Yep, a few hands. It's because it's possible, this is a real important thing, it's possible to be informed about Jesus and still not be transformed by Jesus. That is, you can know a lot about the Bible, you can go to church every weekend, you can have all the right, or know all the right doctrinal statements and so, and still not grow spiritually, or be changed at the level of your heart or your character. And by the way, I'm not just suggesting this applies to you in the seats. It applies very much to me. Even as a pastor, I experience this transformation gap all the time. Uh, Some time ago, I was boarding an airplane, and there was a woman who was in the aisle in front of me, and she was trying to get her bag into the overhead bin, and she was really taking her time. And there was kind of a line building up behind her, and without thinking, I just felt this sense of impatience kind of grow up in my spirit. I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't in a hurry to be anywhere. I mean, you know, the plane wasn't gonna rush away while we were all standing in line, and that, impact, or that impatience began to turn to frustration and anger. Ever notice how that happens? It's almost like there's frustration and anger living inside me somewhere, and this just sort of tapped into it. I mean, I didn't decide, and, or stop and decide to be angry, it just was kind of waiting to come out. In fact, uh, she wasn't looking at me, so I started her giving, giving her this really kind of clear look, like you're wasting my time and ruining my morning, like the look some of you are giving me right now, like you're wasting my time, I'm not sure how this morning's gonna go, and then that anger became kind of this sense of almost judgmental contempt. This is all while in a few moments standing in line, this sense of judgmental contempt, like she must be just an inconsiderate person. She probably treats everyone in her life this way, And so, you know, I'm getting impatient, I'm getting frustrated, so for totally selfish reasons, not because I care, just for selfish reasons, I say, can I help you with your bag? And she looked back at me, say, hey, you're the pastor at my church. (laughs) And I said, yes, I am. (laughs) Clearly not a very good one, but yes, that's, that's what I do from nine to five. You see, you see the great problem, and this is true for every human being, doesn't matter where you come from or what your background, the great problem of spiritual life in our day is not a deficit of information. I mean, that's part of it, it's, but it's not a deficit of information. It's a deficit of transformation. What the Apostle Paul called sanctification, I know you, you talked about that last week. It's why Jesus would say things like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Like why don't you put it into practice? Why don't you actually experience change? And if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, you know this is true, you know how this, no matter how much you know, you still see all the places where you have room to grow, right, and if you're not, if you're here, if you're not sure about faith, or God, or someone, maybe you're visiting here, some of you are here for the first time, and me too, I'm here for the first time this morning, This is a great way for you to see inside why so many Christians in your life or people who call themselves Christians have problems doing what they say they should do, because this is part of the human condition. And so uh, I'm so grateful to be part of this series, this conversation that you're having, and it kind of leads me to the word that I want us to kind of dwell on, talk about, think about together as a church this morning, and it's this word, love. Love. Question, what comes to mind for you when you hear the word love? Maybe for you, that commitment's great. Maybe for you, love is a feeling. Uh, It could be a feeling of affection or tenderness or even romantic love. Um, I grew up uh, kind of influenced by the uh, Disney kind of fairy tale narrative culture, which had this real interesting picture of falling in love, and all the stories started the same way, once upon a time. You know it, right? And there was always a prince and a princess who fell instantly in love, but then something bad would happen, and there was always an evil queen or stepmother, but no matter how bad things got, love always won out in the end. You know, Cinderella married Prince Charming, and Sleeping Beauty married Prince Charming, and Snow White married Prince Charming. Kind of sounds like a sleazy guy, actually, if you think about (laughs) Prince Charming. He's marrying everybody. (laughs) Maybe for you, love is how you describe what you're passionate about. You find yourself saying things like, I love being in the mountains, or I love these new shoes, or I love Cinnabon cinnamon rolls, one of the great proofs of the existence of God, the Cinnabon cinnamon roll. Maybe for you, love is how you express preference for one thing over another. You love tea versus coffee. Uh, You love dogs versus cats. I'm not from Washington, but I've been told there's a significant football game coming up this Friday. Anybody know the game coming up this Friday? Apple Cup, right? Uh, Husky fans will say they love UW. And Cougar fans will say they love Wazoo. Love is an expression of one thing over another. By the way, any guesses on which team God loves more? No, 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 it's Stanford, right? Stanford, where I went to school, is where that was, so, yeah. I knew that was not gonna get any applause in this room. But here's what's so amazing about all of our conceptions and the way we think about and talk about love in our day. Jesus never talked about love as a feeling. He never talked about it as a feeling that you could fall in or out of. He never talked about love as an expression of preference or as a vehicle to describe passion just a few hours before he was arrested and eventually crucified, Jesus said these really remarkable words to his first uh, disciples. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice that love is a verb. It's not something that you feel. It's something you do. One of the best definitions of love I've ever heard is to love means to will the good of another person. Simply to will the good of another person. And this willing the good is not, Jesus does not speak about it as a matter of preference or affinity or if you feel like it, it's just a matter of fact, it's a way of life. And he says, you must do this. And it's not just a command, it's actually a brand marker. Some of you in marketing, you understand a brand signal, something that identifies who you are and and what you're about. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you follow me, that you trust me, that you believe in me, this is the thing. I once saw someone someone who had a t-shirt on that said, they'll know we're Christians by our (laughs) t-shirts. Which is, in some ways, actually how we live out our lives. But not so with Jesus. He says, it's not gonna be about how you preach or pray or go to church on the weekend, but how you love. And love what? one another, other people. Which means if we want to be just like Jesus, we have to learn to love people like Jesus, which is what we're going to learn about together today. But there's a big problem with this loving people like Jesus, and it's a simple thing that often in churches we don't want to admit or don't want to confront, and it's that other people can be quite hard to love, right? Uh, Quick show of hands, anyone else have someone in your life who's not always easy to love? Don't look at them, just hold your hand up, right, okay? Right? Maybe there's someone in your life who's always negative or critical, critical. Maybe there's someone in your life who tends to be full of themselves or always self-promoting. Maybe there's someone in your life who never listens well or doesn't empathize. Maybe it's someone in your life who's always pushing their ideas or their beliefs or their politics on you. Maybe it's someone in your life who's hurt you or betrayed you or broken trust with you. Maybe it's someone who's taken advantage of you in some way. Maybe it's just somebody that gets under your skin, just bothers you for some reason. You're not even sure why, but they just seem hard for you to imagine loving. And in our world, the message when it comes to difficult people is this. You might have to put up with them. You might have to tolerate them when they show up at your house on Thanksgiving, but, uh, and you might need to be polite to them or at least to their face, but you don't actually have to love them. You don't actually have to sacrifice for them. You don't actually have to will their good. You don't actually have to seek to bless them. You don't actually have to encourage them. You certainly don't have to actually have to sacrifice or lose anything on their behalf. But Jesus set an entirely different standard. I don't know if you know about this, an entirely different standard when it comes to love. He said things like, love your enemies. What? Jesus, that's crazy talk. That doesn't do anybody any good. He said things like, do good to those who hate you. What? Bless those who cursed you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I mean, think about that. When someone mistreats you, they cut you off in traffic, when uh, they've hurt you in some way, is your first gut instinct to pray God to bless them? Of course not. And then Jesus goes on to say, in the same part of scripture, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, in other words, Jesus is not that interested in how you loved your loved ones. Now, I wanna be careful that I don't get called out for saying the wrong, thing. He, he cares about it, right? He wants your marriages, your marriages to be great and your relationships to be strong and relationships with your friends and colleagues and coworkers to be well. But the revolution that hit the early church, what marks the church as a different kind of organization and organism, so to speak, uh, the revolution that caused the church in, the, in its first 100, 300 years to be the fastest growing movement the world had ever seen. In fact, the early church, I don't know if you know this, grew over 40% per decade for the first 300 years. That means around 1,000 1, people in 40 AD to over 33 million people 30, uh, 300 years later. That didn't happen because Jews loved other Jews and Greeks loved other Greeks or wealthy made connections with other wealthy people. It was because people like you, regular ordinary people like me and like you, gained, acquired this supernatural, otherworldly skill of learning to love people that they once deemed impossible to love. Now think about the gift this would be in your life to be able to actually love just like Jesus. And Jesus was doing this all the way back to the very beginning with his ministry. Think about the first group of disciples. If you know the stories about his first disciples, you'll know some of these names. There was a guy named Matthew. Anyone remember what Matthew did for a living? He was a tax collector. Uh, These were Jews who had betrayed their faith and their people and their history to side with the Romans and get rich collecting taxes and stealing some for themselves. There's another guy in Jesus' first group of disciples named Judas. Judas was what was called a zealot. Now in that, that day, zealots were religious and political extremists. They hated Rome. They advocated taking violent action against Rome. So there was only one kind of person a zealot would hate more than a Roman. Any guesses? Tax collectors. So you can imagine what it was like when Jesus said, Matthew meet Judas, Judas meet Matthew, you two guys are going to be bunking together, right? You're going to be roommates, and you're going to learn to love in a way that no normal human being can love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. That was a real time in your face. We're going to have to learn to apply this kind of thing. And if we're honest, if we're honest, it's a real time in our face, we're going to have to learn to apply this kind of thing too, because there are people in our lives, whether we admit it on Sunday at church or not, that we simply cannot bring ourselves to love. And there's people in my life too. And so I want to talk this morning about how to do that. Uh, so we're gonna look at a story from the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to that. If not, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna have it on the screens for you, and this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's it's one of my favorites because it's just such a strange story, and for a long time, I I could not understand it. I didn't understand it. I would just kind of pass by and not think too much about it, and you'll see why as I read through it, But as I've come to see what Jesus was actually doing in the story, this story has become incredibly instructive to me on how to love people who are hard to love. So this is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, starting in chapter 15, uh, verse 21. Matthew writes this. He says, leaving that place, they're in Galilee at the time, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, just FYI, this is a strange place for Jesus to go. The region of Tyre and Sidon was north of Galilee along the Mediterranean coast, and it was known for its idolatry, its pagan religion, people who would be considered in that day by first century Jews as unclean, impure, hard to love. In fact, no devout Jew, especially someone like Jesus, a first century rabbi, would go to a place like this on purpose, but Jesus did. It's funny, Jesus is always going to the wrong places, isn't he? And then the text says this, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You can flag that statement. We'll come back to that in a few moments. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I told you, it's a weird story, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like somebody caught Jesus having a really bad day, or someone had their phone out and caught kind of the viral, no one was watching video and posted it, and Jesus is super embarrassed, like, I can't believe that one got online. I mean, this woman approaches Jesus seemingly humbly and in, in need of help, and he, he, he ignores her and then appears to insult her, which at first glance, I mean, this seems like a story of how not to love, Right? And by the way, by the way, if you were going to make up stories to, uh, about Jesus to create a religion so that people would follow it, you wouldn't make up a story like this. That's one of the reasons I love that this story is in the Bible, it reminds us that this must have happened because they wouldn't keep the story in if it was just made up. And as we'll see over the next few moments, there's more to this story than first meets the eye. There's some key lessons on how to love people who feel hard to love that can help you love more like Jesus in your life we're gonna look at four of those lessons for the next few moments. You can write these down as, as we go if you'd like. First lesson is this. Love doesn't mean just be nice. Just be nicer. And that's like the subtle motto on, the, on, on almost every church I know. Well, just come to church, go on Sunday, be in a group, and just be a little nicer out there, right? When the Canaanite woman first approached Jesus, he didn't respond. He was just silence. He was silent. And on the one hand, this silence was culturally appropriate. We'll talk about that in a moment. But on the other hand, his silence confronts our tendency to smooth over our discomfort with other people by just being nice. I actually believe one of the great problems in the church today is this perpetual need to smooth over disagreement or dislike or frustration or conflict with just a sense of polite niceness. We're all trying so hard to perpetually be nicer to each other. And it's a culture killer, actually. When I first came to North Shore uh, on staff, this was a huge problem on our staff team. I would hear all these complaints and criticisms uh, by people in private. You know, he always does that or she never does that. And, but when we're in meetings, everybody was super polite and nice to each other. So I pulled the leadership team together and said, we're going to do something different. We're going to go around the table and not just say what we like or appreciate about each other. We're going to say to each other what we don't like, what we're frustrated by, what we've been bothered by. Sounds kind of crazy, right? There was a little bit. Then it was so interesting. Everyone started out with this kind of habitual need to uh, maybe say a little bit and then go right back into being polite. There was you know, that one time that you talked too much, but you know, I understood you had a lot to get done, and you tend to be late to meetings, but I get it, you're kind of a busy person, until finally I was like, I know we all love Jesus, and we all love the church, but nobody can like each other this much. I mean, I know there's more going on in here. And then it was like the floodgates just opened up. I mean, it was wild. It was like a Dr. Phil show. I mean, it was, kind of went everywhere. And there was all this pent-up frustration that just kept coming out. And they were honest with me too. Someone said, Scotty, uh, I think you can be dismissive of others. I think you can come off as arrogant and aloof. You don't always listen as well as you could. And it was painful to hear those things. But I was so grateful that somebody had the courage to name it. They no longer work at our church, but I was so grateful that they had the courage <laughs> to name what they were thinking. No, I'm just kidding about that. I'm just kidding. Here's the deal. You can't actually learn to love someone if you're always trying to be nice. Just gonna give you a little freedom in your life right now. You can't actually learn to love somebody if you're always trying to be nice. Jesus never once said, follow me and I'll teach you how to just be nice. And because of that exercise, we actually came up with a staff value that reflected this kind of breakthrough moment called we say the last 10%. We say the last 10%. 10% because most people you see are willing to share about 90% of what's true. Maybe they'll get all the way to 90%, but that last 10%, that last little bit, they'll hold back because it might be hurtful or not well received. But the real hurt happens when we don't say it, when it comes out in other ways and to other people, which by the way is where we always go. I mean, we won't say the last 10% to the person, but we'll go tell somebody else which kills community. So love doesn't mean just be nice. Now that doesn't mean that we should be unkind or cruel or mean-spirited, but the goal of the Christian life is not just be nice. So hear that. If nothing else, that's a gift of freedom for you this morning as you go from here. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. Love, Jesus' kind of love, doesn't avoid hard conversation. Love Jesus' kind of love, not our kind of love, but Jesus' kind of love doesn't avoid hard conversations. In the story, Jesus remains silent in those first few moments, but his disciples don't. Remember what they do? They interpret his silence as a chance to dismiss this woman. They go to Jesus and say, send her away. She's bothering us. Now notice, they don't speak directly to her. They avoid her. They don't uh, want to risk having a hard conversation or a difficult moment or getting into conflict. Just moment of confession. Anyone else ever avoid a hard conversation in your life? You feel like, I don't want to have it. I'm not going to go there. Yeah, I catch myself doing this all the time. A few weeks ago, uh, I was with uh, my two-year-old daughter, Nora, at a park near our house. And while she was pra- uh, playing, I took my eyes off her for just a second And when I looked back up, she was actually kind of running out of the park, into the parking lot, and towards the street. And there's cars coming and going, and so I kind of just had this moment of panic. I yelled at her, stop, 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 and I was running as fast as I could just to catch up to her to make sure she didn't get out into the road. And I got to her right before she walked into the street, and she looked at me with this sweet little innocent voice and said, what's the matter, Daddy? You know? And I said, sweetheart, you can't walk out into the road like that. Um, that's why there's, you know, there's cars that may not see you. That's why you always hold daddy's hand. But what matters is that you're safe. What matters is that I love you and that you promise not to tell your mommy about this when you get home, okay? <laughs> because I want to avoid that hard conversation of sharing about what just happened. It's just a human nature. We just do this. We want to avoid saying the hard thing or admitting something we did or calling somebody out. It's our first instinct Some of you have heard of the terms fight or flight. You've heard these terms before in terms of our, it's basically a way of of describing uh, the body's kind of acute stress response. Like when stress goes up, we have this tendency to want to fight, get aggressive, or flight, run away. And it happens to us automatically. Your body, your brain is wired to go to one of those two places. And so our relationships will often be defined by one of those two things question how many of you grew up in a home that was defined by you know verbal conflict lots of noise people spoke up maybe sometimes too loud too much anybody have kind of the high verbal lots of conflict home a few hands how many of you were raised in homes where it was conflict was like avoided like the plague like everyone was passive no one really spoke up kind of more the avoidant side and what happens is this is kind of just sort of side note people who grew up in one home often marry people who grew up in the other kind of home (laughs) right? You're looking at me going, okay, that kind of explains it. Same is true in my, in my family. Uh, Nina grew up in a house that was far more expressive and verbal, and they'd say what they think. And in my home, it was much more quiet and lots of smiles, and it didn't feel like conflict was always handled, uh, maybe up, uh, as, up, uh, up front. Um, and that led to all this tension between us. But here's the thing, fight or flight, they're actually both ways to avoid We get aggressive, we get loud because I don't want to have a real honest heart-to-heart conversation. I don't want to have you say anything to me about me. Or flight, just avoid, get quiet, withdraw. And this is especially true when it comes to people who seem hard to love. We avoid the difficult conversation. We avoid speaking truthfully or we speak truthfully about the person to somebody else. But if you think back to the story, Jesus didn't avoid that woman that everyone else wanted to avoid. Now, it's easy to focus on what he said. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the most shocking detail in the story is that Jesus actually spoke to her. See, in those days, it was inappropriate for a man, especially a rabbi, to speak to a woman in public, especially a Gentile woman. But Jesus did not avoid. He talked to her. He stepped into the difficult conversation because that's what love does. Love does. That's what love does. And I imagine every one of us can think of at least one person in our life, one person right now that you're avoiding having that conversation with. Maybe it's an apology that you need to make. Maybe it's an apology that you need to ask for. Maybe it's sharing how somebody made you feel or confronting somebody with something. One of the practices I have at work every day when I leave the office, I'll make a note of the conversations that I needed to have, that I need to have or that I avoided that day. There's often several of them. And sometimes I'll be able to go and have them that afternoon. Most of the time, I make sure I come back to them the next day. Sometimes, I'll just admit it, I'll confess, I just ignore them. A couple days goes by, and guess what happens? You don't feel it so deeply anymore, right? You don't feel so bad about it. You're like, ah, that wasn't a big deal. I feel a little better. I'll just kind of move on. It'd be awkward to bring that back up. And the longer you wait, the less frustration or hurt you feel. But it's not because the relationship has been improved it's because the relationship has been weakened. You've allowed this gap, this distance, this fracture to go ahead and become more of a permanent part of that relationship, you've tolerated it. And so, you have to be intentional about this, you have to ask yourself, what person, what conversations am I actually avoiding? And then schedule it, because love doesn't avoid the hard conversation. That's the second lesson, brings us to a third lesson, and this is gonna get real personal here, Love means confronting our hate. Love means confronting our hate. Hate? (laughs) That's a pretty strong word. I mean, some of you are thinking, you know, wait, I don't hate anybody. I'm not always happy with people. I mean, I get frustrated with people. I don't hate anybody. And that's because we tend to think of hate like we think about love as a kind of emotional, something that you feel, that you fall in and out of. But remember, the Bible doesn't speak about love as a feeling, nor does it speak about hate as a feeling. They're both something that you do. Hate doesn't will the good of someone else. Hate will will tolerate indifference with someone else. Hate is a way of saying, you are worth less than me. You're just, in some ways, you're worth a little bit less than me. In the field of education, there's something called the hidden curriculum. Anyone ever heard of the hidden curriculum? What it means is uh, in every school, there's a formal curriculum, you know, math, science, uh, geography, whatever you have, all the kind of formal uh, subjects you learn. And then there's a hidden curriculum, which is who sits with who in the lunchroom, who's cool and who's not, who's in and who's out. The hidden curriculum operates along this dividing line between the words us and them. And here's the thing about life and our lives. Almost all of us have an us and a them. And who's the them in your life? We all have a them somewhere. Them could be people who look different than you. The them could be people who live different than you. The them could be people who believe different stuff than you. The them could be people who vote differently than you. Everybody's got a them. But here's what I'm getting at with this word hate. Love means there is no them. There is no them. Look back at the story in Matthew. After the disciples try to send this woman away, he, uh, they turn or she turns to Jesus and says, Lord, help me. And he has this strange reply. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And just so you know, dogs in that day were not seen as sweet, beloved companions like they are in our day. In fact, I just saw an ad for a place where you could take your dog for a massage. And I thought to myself, if your dog is that stressed, stressed out, it needs a new owner, not a massage, okay? I and mean, that's just, just a little word of advice, all right? But in that day, dogs were unclean, they were unwanted, and it seems like Jesus is saying, that's who this woman is. But there's a problem with interpreting it that way for one, it doesn't fit with the way Jesus treats and, uh, other women or speaks about them, nor does it fit with how he eventually, uh, eventually affirms this woman. More importantly, Jesus just told his disciples, remember this phrase, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel, which means he's not trying to teach some uh, Canaanite woman a lesson. He wants to teach his disciples a lesson. About what? About how they see this woman about their own prejudice, their own racism, their own self-righteousness, the lack of love in their hearts. They looked down at her. They were offended by her. She was of them in a huge way. In fact, one of the morning prayers often recited by devout men in that day was, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman that was what many men would pray in that day, which is why most New Testament scholars believe Jesus didn't say these seemingly harsh words looking right at the woman in the eye, but looking back at his disciples in the eye. As if to say, I know you think Gentiles are like dogs, and you think we should treat them as such, but I want you to think about this a little moment. Is that really what you think I would do? And they should say, no, Jesus, we know it's not, but they don't say a word because they don't want to admit that they don't like her. They don't want to value her. They might even hate her. So question, this kind of gets kind of personal. What if Jesus were to look you in the eye and say what you're actually thinking about them? Whoever they or them may be. About your boss, a difficult family member, That person whose politics or personal life offends you in some way? What if he put words to your unaddressed anger or judgmentalism or self-righteousness or lack of uh, love? The stuff that stays hidden way down deep in your heart. What if he did? You see, we all have to actually confront these biases, these prejudices, the stuff that's in all of us and repent of it. People, That God came and died for people that he loved. You know, a lot of the time, if I'm honest, when I think about other people, the stuff I don't like in other people is actually stuff that I actually see in myself. Have you noticed that? Someone that talks too much, maybe I'm worried I do that too. Somebody that treats people poorly, I get so judgmental about that, but I watch myself go do that all the time. Someone that seems so self-centered, and I can be, you know, just kind of scoff at that or criticize that, but... That's how I am too. See if you wanna learn to love a difficult person you have to ask the question, am I not also a difficult person to love? There are some nights uh, when our daughter Nora who's just two years old will start crying and I'm exhausted, I don't wanna get up and I'll find myself leaning over to Nina and saying things like I will cook dinner for six months in a row if you will get up right now and go get her and she'll be like no chance, it's your turn, you're getting up. (laughs) And I'll go to her room and I'll pick her up and for a split second I'll think, don't you realize how difficult you are for me to love? And then I'll remember how vulnerable she is and how needy she is and how there's no other human being like this one right here in my arms. And my heart will just break thinking about how selfish and superficial I am. And I'll think about all the ways that I'm difficult for my wife Nina, I think about all the ways that I frustrate or let down my friends. I think about all the ways I'm selfish with my colleagues and at work. I think about all the times where I'll spin the truth just a little bit to make myself look a little better. I think about all the ways that I'll look down at people who I might disagree with. The truth is, the hardest person for God to love in my life, it's me. It's me. Because I know what's in here. I know what I'm capable of thinking and doing or saying. And this brings us to what's so good about Jesus. He didn't come into the world and die on a cross for people who are easy to love. He came into the world and he died on a cross for people who are hard to love. People who lie, people who cheat, people who sleep around, people who are greedy, people who are self-righteous, people who look down at others, people like you and people like me. No strings, just uh, radical Uh, gracious, unmerited love. I have a good good friend who always tells his kids the same thing before they go to bed at night. He says, "Uh, I don't love you this much or this much or even this much. I love you this much. And one day he was out washing his car. and while He went inside to take a break. Uh, One of his kids got everything out of the trunk including a bunch of clothes and a nice tennis racket and took the hose and sprayed it and basically ruined all this stuff. And when my uh, friend came back outside, he saw what had happened, and he knew that he had to administrate justice. And so he said, what do you have to say for yourself? And his child looked him in the eye and said, Daddy, I love you this much. (laughs) See, when it comes to our lives, our world, our relationships, we've pretty much taken everything out of the trunk and basically ruined it. But when God came into the world to administrate justice, he did something no one expected. He went to a cross, he gave up his his life, arms outstretched, as if to say, I love even the most difficult people this much. And that's how we're called to love, friends. That's how we're called to love, people in our lives that's why the bible says love is really the point of all this think about it that's why jesus summed up the entire law by saying love god and love your neighbor that's why his disciple john said whoever loves has been born of god and if you don't love you don't even know god that's why another disciple named peter said above all love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins that's why the apostle paul said speak the truth in love and the goal of our instruction is love and to do everything in you know the word love but here's the thing you have a choice to make you have to commit yourself right now to a life defined by love and by the way this is not an easy choice not loving is more convenient not loving is not nearly as costly i'd prefer just to keep you know tracking with my own happiness my own little kingdom not loving often feels better you know, every time I get an email complaining or critical feedback, getting even or having the last word feels like a better way to go, which is when I have to make a choice. And this is the homework I want to give you this week as you go out into your life, love that person who is hard to love make it a decision this week make a commitment this week it's not a feeling it's not a preference it's not a passion it's a choice it's an action it's a verb it's something you do it is your brand as a disciple of Jesus this is the thing to go and love that hard person just start with one some of you're thinking gosh I got 60 70 people to think about right now no just start with one just start with one which leads to the final lesson. With this, I'll close. God can help you learn to, to love just like Jesus. God can help you learn to love just like Jesus. You can't love a difficult person in your life just by trying harder. You need God's love. You need God's help. And we learn this from the, uh, not from the disciples, but from that Canaanite woman, remember, who comes to Jesus and says, help me. She even says, even the little dogs get little crumbs from their master's table as if to say, I know you can do something for me, Jesus, not because I deserve it, but I know you can do it because of who you are, to which Jesus replies, woman, you have great faith. He uses this Greek word mega from which we get the English word mega. It shouldn't be a trick question, okay? I know it's, <laughs> it's early this morning, I get it means you have huge faith, mega faith, kingdom-sized faith, because when you faced a difficult situation or a difficult person, you didn't just be nice, you didn't just avoid, you leaned in, faced it with courage, and you asked God for help. And so we're gonna close and do that right now. And I wanna invite you right now, here in church, even though it's Sunday, it's church, to think about a difficult person in your life right now. Think about them, bring them to mind. Shouldn't take long. But instead of praying, God, make them, which is what our hearts are often thinking when we pray or think about difficult people, make them apologize, make them change, make them go away, we're gonna pray like that Canaanite woman prayed God, help me. Help me be more loving. Help me be more pol- help, uh, patient. Help me have that hard conversation. Help me will the good of this person. And not only can God help you do that, just imagine the spiritual revival that would happen on the east side and beyond if our churches were places where people like uh, Matthew and Judas, Republican and Democrat, older and younger, even Huskies and Cougars were learning together how to love just like Jesus. That's what we gotta do. Let me pray.